Greetings. You've returned to the Black and Grim podcast, our wonderful horror fiction podcast. Come in, come in. Now that you've a taste for darkness, welcome. My name is Mr. Black, your host and harrowing narrator. As usual, Grim is around somewhere, skulking, I believe. Well, season one is officially underway. We appreciate all the feedback from episode two. Last time, Danny risked life and limb to save the girl. Not to mention the voices. Is he going mad? Is he being haunted? We'll find out. Now sit, get comfortable, and join us as we continue with episode three of Danny's River. We carry our heartache with us. Like Atlas, we walk with the world pressing down on our shoulders. Like Prometheus, we suffer for the choices we made. Sure, we believe our actions hold enough good intentions to pay the bill when it's come due. As I sink to my knees in a stranger's tub, with filmy brown sludge scoring my flesh as it washed from my naked frame, I couldn't restrain the guilt my words carried. I had told Walt things were going to get better. I had spoken to my mother in anger, in hurt, in betrayal. Murder doesn't cap a person's story. Their memory, their ghost, continues on, if only in the hearts and minds of we who remain. And where potential once existed, I only found the agony of should-haves. And with that, with grief drawn outward as the muddy water circled the drain, I finished bathing in a stranger's bathroom. Outside, the storm seemed to taper off into grumbling indifference. Somewhere in the distance, thunder roared every so often, and when I ended my shower and stepped from the tub, brilliant flashes lit the steamed-over window. Slowly, methodically, I worked the fluffy coral towel over my body where moisture lifted off with a comforting fabric's passage. An uneasy feeling remained. Kara's family seemed nice, but I wasn't up to awkward pleasantries. As I pulled on the surprisingly comfortable clothing, jeans, and a soft gray shirt, I studied my reflection in the mirror's clear places. Clean, a little bruised from my time in the river. I offered a smile, and while Mirror Denny returned the gesture, Neither of our expressions did more than crinkle tired faces. All too soon, I laid the towel down on the counter and turned towards the closed doorway. Time to rejoin the others. Danny. Danny. I whirled around, expecting someone, while simultaneously knowing nobody was there with me. Who's there? I hissed. A warm flush flooded my cheeks at this automatic response. I 
Denny Preston was going nuts. Naturally, inspection of the bathroom revealed no one. However, I couldn't dispel the notion that someone shared the space with me. My heart raced violently in my chest and blood thrummed through my eardrums. It was as if my body refused to accept deception as readily as my eyes had done. Danny, the voice spoke again. Danny, must go. Danny, please. This time, the voice didn't sound like my mom. Rather, it held a masculine timbre I vaguely recognized. Like a dream you wake from, where hours later you still remember the feeling, if not the details. Whatever the case, I felt sick. I definitely heard the voice. Yet, when I thought about it, I envisioned someone speaking through radio static, where the stations are on the fringes of their search. I needed to get away. But when I opened the bathroom door to step out into the hallway, Kara lingered a few paces away. In her hands, a steaming mug waited for me. I remember she had mentioned something about a cup of tea, but it didn't smell like any tea I'd had. Glancing over my shoulder, I shivered but said nothing. Telling myself the strings to my sanity were steadily fraying, I thrust thoughts of the spectral voice down and pulled the door shut behind me. Even as the door swung closed, I heard the voice say my name again, fainter, as if choosing to re-enter the world, to join this beautiful, and man, Kara was definitely a beautiful person. The voice tapered off into a failing whisper. As all this happened, my host proffered the cider and a charming, toothy smile. Hello, she said. Turns out we're out of tea. Still, I thought you might like something to warm your insides. And mom makes the best homemade cider. So, here you go. She lifted the mug towards me, beckoning for me to take it. Not wishing to be rude, despite not having a particular fondness for the drink, I took the mug and raised it to my lips. Talk about pleasant surprises. To put it bluntly, that shit was good. The steamy liquid flowed down my throat, loosening the constricted corridor as it tumbled downward. On one hand, it tasted invitingly sweet, like honeysuckle on a country road. But in a blink, it tasted devilishly tart, as if reminding my insides, this is apple cider and you will enjoy. Unexpectedly, I liked it. And, peering over the wafting steam, I saw Kara beaming at me. It's good. Guess it isn't just tea that makes everything better, eh? Thank you. I love the stuff. She shimmied from side to side, almost shyly, as our eyes met. Taking another sip, I registered that she had also taken the opportunity to clean up while I showered. She wore a slim cerulean spring dress that emphasized the creamy brown skin beneath. I'm a leg guy. Even in my sorrow, I realized I was still a leg guy. That being said, I couldn't stop my eyes from wandering her muscled limbs. Couldn't prevent my own eyes to drift deeper into her aqua pools without a lifeline, without any sort of aid. I think she noticed, but she didn't chide me. Instead, her smile broadened and those high cheekbones colored ever so slightly. So, I started, suddenly feeling a little awkward. So, 
she echoed. Huh. Um, I probably should get going soon. Gotta get my clothes clean, you know? The funeral is tomorrow. I swallowed the cider in my rising gorge. Shuffling from foot to foot, I mentally kicked myself for creeping on her. Sure, Kara might be the prettiest girl I'd seen in a long time, but that didn't give me the right to perv on her. And besides, I was hearing voices now, so you do the math. I didn't expect her response. Wait, you can't leave yet. Thinking she meant I couldn't leave with her father's clothes on me, I said, I can... I can put my wet clothes on again. Frowning, she reached out for my arm. Where my instincts would normally cause me to shy away, I remained steadfast, and she rested a calming, oddly tender hand on my upper bicep. No, that's... that's not what I meant. We'll get your clothes cleaned up for you. It's no problem at all. Promise. Cocking an eyebrow, I said, I'm not sure what's going on. If I'm being honest, I'm stretched too thin. I just... I have to get back to my friend's place. Well, his mom's. I appreciate you letting me get cleaned up, but... Here, I trailed off and glanced back towards the closed bathroom door. An instinctual shudder fluttered through my body. Did I still hear the voice behind the thick portal? Danny. Danny. I shivered again. You okay? Worry in her voice. I turned back to regard Kara. I thought her face changed as I did so. Where there had been concern, I saw unease. It's funny how opinions change on a dime. Affection swiftly transforms into disdain when strangers glimpse each other's truth. I didn't belong in this gentle world where mothers and fathers clutched their children tightly. I shouldn't linger where my grief harbored the strength to squash their joy. It took several heartbeats before we realized that her hand still rested on my arm. Suddenly, I understood the pretty young woman had shared my frightened shudder, and because she couldn't walk this road with me, misunderstood, well, misunderstood me. I opened my mouth to answer, to placate her unexpected distress. I held a curious affection for this young woman. Maybe it came from a vague hero complex, or maybe the emotion held substance. Either way, I steadily tread towards horizons far too high over my head. Funnily enough, my inner turmoil dispelled her unease. I was the broken boy who had lost his family and saved her life again. I was quantifiable. Finally, I stumbled over the words. No, I'm really not okay. Tears formed at the corners of my eyes and, without hesitation, flowed along my cheek's hard curves. Each droplet melted with the one before and after until salted streams wove over my face. I clutched the cider in my hands. Knuckles whitened as fingers tightened around the porcelain cup. I battled my way towards calmness, but the floodgates had opened and I was at my heartache's whims. I wept far longer than pride wanted. I cried infinitely harder than shame could rebuff. Luckily, strength didn't flee my legs and send me to the hallway's floor. I'm sorry. Oh my god, no. Don't you dare be sorry, she blurted, reaching for me again. In a rush, she took the mug from my hand and placed it on the ground. Then, as if we were lovers or old friends, 
she swept me into a tight embrace, and me, I cried into her shoulder. A few minutes later, we left the hallway. The house was a curious blend of pastel cuteness and a wild geyser of unabashed colors. Paintings with subjects ranging from flower-laden pastures to gorgeous portraits decorated the cream walls, bookcases, tables, couches. Every known piece of modern furniture seemed to fill the space, and yet, it didn't have a cluttered effect. Rather, Kara's family home exhibited a fluid homeliness that made me think of my own home. As we walked through the wide hallways, towards a cozy sitting room next to the wide, obviously well-used, and deliciously aromatic kitchen, I swallowed more grief, suppressed more memories of my mother. Eventually, she guided me down onto a wide cerulean couch. A half dozen pillows decorated the surprisingly comfortable piece, several of which Kara thrust aside to make room for us. After I had settled down, her mother, Anne, entered from the kitchen side. She bore a tray laden with apple fritters and what appeared to be cookies of some sort. She offered a kind smile as she placed a tray down on the narrow coffee table in front of us. Thank you for letting me get cleaned up, I said to her. And the clothes. I really appreciate it. Oh, you are most welcome. Jerry's taking your suit to the dry cleaner. She adjusted the tray on the table and, offering a satisfied grunt, moved towards the far wall. A warm smile greeted me as she folded her hands across her belly in a gesture that made me think of storybook nannies. I couldn't help but return the smile. Please, enjoy, she said, nodding towards the loaded food tray. I reached down to grab a warm fritter, bringing it to my mouth. I sniffed it before taking a bite. Much like the cider, it smelled delicious. It smelled like the best parts of home. Greedily, I took a bite, closing my eyes gleefully as the warm treat filled my mouth. Before I realized it, I had eaten the entire thing and lifted a second one. The boy likes it, Anne said to her daughter, who was busy nibbling on one of the cookies. Mmm, it's really good. I stammered through mouthfuls. I couldn't remember the last time I enjoyed food, certainly not in the last week. Prior to this, Loss tainted my memories of taste. I'm glad you like it. Now, before I leave you children to yourselves, Jerry wanted me to mention that he has a suit you could borrow tomorrow, just in case the dry cleaner doesn't finish in time. I started to think about Todd Wilkinson, about how Mom said he was a good man, how people thought he was a good man. My heart raced. Irrational terror started to supplant the temporary peace. Mama, Kara started, glancing at me. Oh, shush. It's the least we can offer. Besides, your papa got that suit when he was a little stockier, so it fit quite nicely, I would think. My hands fell to my lap, with the fritter all but forgotten. A drywall taste filled my mouth as moisture retreated down my gullet. Distrustfully, I demanded, Why are you doing this? You don't know me. Perhaps more anger than was warranted filtered in but I honestly didn't fathom why this family continuously offered aid to me. I didn't trust it. Could I even afford to trust it? Peace, Danny, Anne said, crossing the space between us with hands held, palms out, in surrender. Bare feet crossed the smooth hardwood, almost ghost-like, without making a sound. Myself, well, I sat trembling, on the edge of the couch, ready to run away. 
I kept hearing the spectral voice echoing in my mind, warning me to get away. Kara remained silent throughout. Oddly, I felt her hand pressed against the side of my leg as her arm rested between us. Well, you done seen plenty of evil. You've endured the worst this world has to offer. You didn't have to jump into the water after Kara. Truth be told, most folks would have thought twice before doing what you did. They'd have grabbed their phones. They'd have told themselves someone else would rescue her. Now maybe it wasn't too smart, but you got a good heart beating in that chest right there. By this time, Anne had drawn close enough to tap my breast. Now it's a little matter to put clothes on your back, son. It's a paltry payment for what you done for me and mine. My natural inclination to argue faltered as I gazed up into those deep, milky eyes. My own mom would have done the same. She wouldn't have taken no for an answer. All right, I whispered. All right. Later, Kara and I stood outside Scott's house. I heard his mom fussing inside, well-meaning, but she had always been a little harsh on her son. I'd enter momentarily, but I needed... Hell, I don't know what I needed. A nervous thread wound around my heart, and a rock blocked my throat from gathering clever words. Can I see you again? She finally asked, breaking the stifling silence we shared on the rickety porch. Well, I do have to get my suit back and return your dad's clothes. I tried on the suit, and to my surprise, the navy threads looked pretty good on me. Maybe a little snug on the shoulders, but I could endure a few hours in it. You know that's not what I mean. I know. Well, can I? Like, a date? It doesn't have to be like anything. Just a girl and a fella, whiling away their time. I smiled at this, but it quickly faltered when Todd Wilkinson sprang to mind. She noticed this. Her coy expression vanished, and she started to say something. Cutting in, I blurted, I want to. I like that. But the guy who killed my family, he's still on the loose. I reached for her arm, and when she didn't pull away, I continued, I don't want to drag anyone into this horror show. I've lost too much. Too damn fucking much. Hey, she said, looking at me until I met her gaze. We don't have to let it be anything more than two people enjoying each other's company. I'm not worried about that guy. You should worry about him. Huh. Nobody said I have good sense. So, what do you say? I nodded. If you're sure, I am. Well, then, okay. Now go in and get some rest. You've got some life ahead of you. She kissed me on the cheek, and then, without waiting for any response, returned to her dusty green pickup in the drive. I stood, fingertips pressed against where she had kissed my cheek, and watched the curious girl depart. When she had backed out onto the main road, and sped off towards destinations unknown, I went inside. Somehow, I didn't think she meant just to hang out with me. We held the funeral the next day. The river had done more damage to my suit than the dry cleaner could fix in such a short time, so I attended in Jerry's donated suit. We had kept the viewing pretty small, especially compared to the funeral. Hundreds turned out. My mother's light had shone brightly in this community. And Walt, damn, that kid was more popular than I'd realized. Even Kara's family attended, though they kept to the crowd's rear the majority of the time. Most funerals are the same, 
so I'm not going to bore you with all the details. I wept. I shook hands. I buried the last of my blood into the uncaring earth. Though I hesitate to call a funeral beautiful, especially considering whose it was, I have to admit theirs was lovely. We laid them into the earth, mom beside her husband, to decompose next to the love who had been tragically taken years ago and Walt nearby. People offered their condolences, their hugs, their pitying smiles. I did my best not to resent them and accept the offerings with decorum. Did I cry? You betcha. But I also held my head high and did my best to honor their memory. Hours passed. Those who knew us best gathered at Scott's house to share food and stories into the wee hours of the night. We celebrated their life. We laughed at their memories. And we wept at their absence. But we kept going. Eventually, Scott and I sat around his mother's table, sipping on delicious iced tea. Trent had just left to go home. I don't know if I mentioned this, but my friends had an apartment somewhere in town. Why we didn't go there in the first place, I don't know. I suspect Scott might have figured I needed someone more dependable than him. Maybe Mrs. Lattimore coerced her son into it. It doesn't matter. They looked after me when I didn't think I had anyone left. I think I'm going to go to the house in the morning, I said. I didn't meet my friend's eyes. Instead, I looked into my hands, into the sweating glass's swirling contents. I didn't wait for him to respond before continuing. Can't avoid it forever. That makes sense, right? He tilted his head back and down his glass's contents. Then, smacking his lips, he... Well, it wasn't quite a slam, but he put the cup down hard enough for me to lift my gaze. Hard Amber studied me, as if he were weighing my words or calculating how he meant to respond. Scott might have opted to postpone college a few years, but he wasn't stupid. Frankly, in that moment, he made me feel like a kid who had disappointed his father. His father who was prepared to bring out the A-grade lecture. Go ahead, tell me I'm being dumb. You've got it all over your face. I grumbled, dropping my gaze again. Brother, you do what you got to. He spoke slowly, hesitating as if his words fell heavily from his mouth. We, we do a lot of dumb in our life. You, Trent, and me. Maybe we ain't always done the right thing. Maybe you always was the best of us. I didn't know what this had to do with me going home again. Even so... I kept quiet. Scott had a point, I guessed, and would get there when he got there. We was proud when you got into that school. Folks had you pegged as a wild card. As a guy who would be his own worst enemy if he didn't get a hold of his mouth. I felt my body tense in anger. When I glared at him, fists clenched on the table in front of me. He said, You know it's true. See, that's what we're doing right now. Speaking truth. You got hope, brother. Man, it sucks what that prick did to Walt. Did to your mama. But you still got life in you, man. So I'm going to tell you something I need for you to keep in your head. What? He held up a hand to beckon for me to be patient. I didn't recognize this version of Scott. He seemed so much like his father. Intense. Meaningful. Like he had the most important things in the world to say. And you could listen or not. But if you did, well... Just might learn something. 
Scott's father had died when he was 12. Deacon Lattimore fought cancer and lost. I got me a bad feeling about you going back to that house. I know you got to do what it is you feel you got to do. Like I said, we ain't always done the right thing. You going on living is the right thing, man. You not letting the ghost keep you down is the right thing. I just don't know that going into that house, I don't know if it's a good idea. Why not? Scott danced around the truth he didn't seem to want to share with me. Dude, you're really not making a lot of sense. Deep gorges formed across his forehead as my friend scowled. He pressed his dominant hand against his temple in an attempt to massage his head back into smoothness. As the nearby wall clock quietly trumpeted the passage of time, he delved inward in search of, well, I guess what he needed to say to me. What felt like an eternity tiptoed by before he spoke again. I know you. Leave Todd to the cops, okay? Let them find him. What are you talking about? I gritted my teeth in a failing struggle to keep my temper in check. My legs started to push outward, meaning to propel my seated frame into the kitchen air. Anger, admittedly foolish rage, engorged my veins with throbbing stupidity. If Scott didn't get to his point, if he didn't calm the beast, we were poised for hateful words. Pain blossomed in my left hand. Peering downward, I realized I'd started to grip the table's edge hard enough to turn my knuckles white and the flesh to stretch towards its capabilities. Settle, brother. I'm not trying to pick a fight with you. Bullshit. You talk in your sleep. Wintry ice filled my veins. My skin crawled beneath the feet of a thousand imaginary ants. Do not. Scott leveled a slightly bemused look at me. Wanna tell me about the letters? Morning came, as it always does, and I found myself standing next to my car, outside my family's home. Heavy stones settled in my stomach as I stared towards the empty porch, where I could still see brownish-red splotches splattering the wood steps. Overhead, a dismal gray curtain swathed the southern sky, as if to shield me from light's blunt revelations. I could do this. I could walk by my mother's empty Chevrolet and over to where Walt had fled this world. I could take down the police tape still stretching across the porch. I could venture inside, right? As I took those first tumultuous steps away from my vehicle, something occurred to me, oddly, for the first time. Why did we hold the funeral so quickly after the murders? I'll tell you what Miranda eventually told me. Someone with pool got away with some hinky shit. Mommy and Walt should have remained in the coroner's office a bit longer if you consider two things. First, their murderer remained at large. And second, no shell casings or bullet residue had been found at the scene or in their bodies. These make sense, but you'll remember I wasn't exactly in my right mind lately and... Hell, let's be honest, I was little more than a kid. As distraught as I was, in my core, I believed the police had our best interests in mind. I was wrong, mostly. A manic need suddenly gripped me as I drew closer to the porch. I needed to get rid of the blood. I needed to somehow give Walt peace. I could do this by cleaning the steps, 
I could do this by not letting his final moments linger, only to be what I had left of him. So shoving my keys into a hip pocket, I moved around the porch's far side, making sure not to look at the blood-stained steps, and crouched next to the watering hose and spigot. I crammed the hose onto the faucet, and, utilizing more brute force than was probably warranted, I started to turn. When it wouldn't turn anymore, I twisted again, just to make sure. This caused my hand to slip, metal sliced against my palm, searing the flesh because I had been gripping it too tightly. Admittedly, I muttered a few choice profanities before letting go. Standing, I reached down to untangle the long hunter green snake. Step by step, I backed up, permitting it to slide through my hands as it straightened. It was a long hose, meant to water flower beds to either side of the porch, so I had enough length to accomplish my task. Although I had ample water pressure, it wasn't enough to strip the dried blood from the sullied wood. Luckily, our garage doubled its storage space, so I didn't have to go into the house yet. It didn't occur to me to wonder why Mom's car was in the driveway instead of inside. At the time, I just thanked God I could go and get a brush and some cleaner without entering the main house. I knew where the things I needed were located, so it didn't take conscious thought to acquire them. Eventually, probably less than five minutes later, I returned to the porch. I dumped the cleaner over the porch where I could see dried blood. I didn't know why the storm hadn't cleaned it, though I guess the roof and surrounding trees lent to that. Regardless, the blood remained, and I, the last surviving Preston, meant to strip it away. Teardrops accumulated around my eyes as I returned to the spigot and turned the water back on. Removing my shirt, I saturated the bloody wood, causing a thick, foamy lather to spread across each sturdy plank. I filled the bucket I had brought with me, groaning when I registered I had used all the cleaner. Then, dropping to my knees, my hands reached for the brush floating in the bucket. Grief billowed, but I managed to bite it down so I could work the sturdy brush over the steps. I worked until my hands started to bleed, and the brush snapped in my ever-tightening grip. Splinters attacked my torn fingers, but my madness refused to acknowledge their assault. I was gripped by something. I didn't know what. I had to get the crimson stains up, to dismiss this constant reminder that I hadn't been there for Walt. When an hour had quickly passed, the stains were not fully gone, mostly, but not wholly. Still, I wouldn't, I couldn't move on until the porch was stripped of my brother's blood. I couldn't let it linger, not because I didn't love him, but because I couldn't bear to look at it, knowing that I should have listened to my gut and gone home. It makes no sense, but I needed to suffer. I needed some personal penance for not standing between my loved ones and their killer. Sure, time lends rationality, revealing the belief's foolishness. I hated myself. I hated how fucked my life was. More, I despised not having the answers I desperately needed. I didn't care the wooden brush couldn't withstand the emotional onslaught ripping through me. It would yield to my need, and it did, after a fashion. Eventually, I cleaned the boards enough so most folks wouldn't notice the slight discoloration. Or they'd just dismiss it as casualty to Mother Nature. Not me, though. The pools. The war shark blots. 
They were etched into my imagination with the surgeon's precision. Funny thing too, I didn't see any holes from a gunshot. The sun burned the late morning sky when I finally regained my feet and tossed the garden hose aside. I had left the Latimore's home just after dawn. When I looked at my soggy watch, the arms indicated it wasn't quite eleven. Shielding my eyes, I scanned the empty yard for reasons to avoid going inside. Sure, I could mow the yard, as the grass had gone the way of Samson before Delilah got involved. The garden bed needed some weeding, and the rest of the walkway could use some attention. Deep down, I knew I couldn't keep postponing. I had to cross the threshold and re-enter what had once been a good place. That being said, I really didn't fucking want to. As they say, the show must go on. I retrieved my keys from my pants pocket and, mindlessly flipping through them with my fingers, I moved up onto the porch. By the time my fingers settled on the correct key, I stood outside the front door. Could I do it? I honestly didn't know. Fear slips into us with such ease, it's easy to forget a time before it rooted inside. I struggled to settle the gyrating stomach, and my limbs quivered uncharacteristically with trepidation. But I did it. I pierced the waiting keyhole and twisted. The door groaned ominously as it swung open. Hello? I called, expecting no one, and simultaneously expecting someone. As expected, my call wasn't answered. Glass shard tears rolled down my bedraggled face as I clutched the doorframe. I lingered on the precipice, as if on the edge of two worlds, trying to will myself to press onward. Figuring it was better to face my demons rather than stall the inevitable, I mechanically forced one foot in front of the other. Yet I couldn't suppress a violent shudder as I stepped into the dark house. Too many destinations. I didn't know where I should venture first. The living room, where I'd spoken to Miranda. My bedroom, where Todd murdered my mom. The kitchen, where I'd heard the disembodied voice. Or somewhere else. I opted for the living room. Slowly, painstakingly, I trudged away from the foyer, pulling the door closed behind me. The living room appeared much like it had the last time I'd been there. Curiously, the laundry had been folded and placed on one end of the couch. I found that peculiar, but chalked it up to some cop helping out a grieving kid. Not that it mattered. Most of the clothes were my brother's. I reached over the couch and pushed aside the curtains to let some sunlight into the shadowy murk. When I looked out the window, I noticed there wasn't a single cloud in the deep blue sky. Sunlight wandered briskly through the room dispelling each shadow as it enveloped all unseen places and lending the space a comforting glow. Every so often, I could hear children down the street. From the sound of it, they were playing tag. Shrill laughter and jovial hoots broke the silence as someone called out, gotcha, or no fair, every so often. They seemed happy, untouched by atrocity that had been perpetuated just outside their sheltered worlds. I smiled as their games reminded me of running around the backyard with Walt, playing catch, playing tag, and just goofing off like brothers do. As the thought settled, my smile soured and faded from my face. I sank onto my couch to bury my face into my hands. I was starting to feel overwhelmed, 
and I hadn't even gotten beyond the living room, that's when I noticed the mail stacked neatly on the coffee table. Again? The cops had brought in the mail? It seemed kind of weird if you asked me. Maybe Mrs. Lattimore had come to check on things while I stayed with her. Yeah, that seemed like a logical possibility. A person expects bills to accumulate. They even expect junk mail. These are pillars of civilized society, as tried and true as taxes. However, I did not anticipate the volume of letters and cards comprising the stack. Realizing that I had nothing better to do, I figured it would provide at least a passable distraction. It wasn't until I had filtered through more than half of them that it hit me how much my family meant to this town. Granted, there were cards that radiated with false sincerity, as if the sender had only done so because it's what you're supposed to do. But there were some, such as those sent by people mom worked with. They spoke of the bright light Nadia Preston had been, how she had changed lives and left a hole in people's lives. One of Walt's teachers spoke about how she had never met someone with such raw hunger to learn, and that's a teacher who had taught me. Time passed swiftly as I read words that created a strange mixture of tranquility and torment. I wept when I read Miss Gertrude's letter. My mom had, in the elderly librarian's words, almost single-handedly saved one of the old buildings in historic downtown from being demolished. Mom had put up a fight, arguing that the city would be destroying its heritage. After weeks of protests and complications, she finally got her way. Renovations were to start in the next quarter, after which a ceremony in our honor would be held on the property. Mom would have liked that. Then, when I had moved the mail around enough, I saw a small white envelope poking out from beneath one of the trays on the table. Curiously, I drew it free with my forefinger. It slid effortlessly across the glass. No return address. Only a single word, written in tight, very neat handwriting. Daniel. A shiver and my blood ran cold, though I didn't know why. Suddenly, I didn't want to read anymore. I was oversaturated with well wishes and encouragement. I needed some water. Yes, that was it. I needed water. I rose awkwardly and stormed from the room into the gloomy kitchen. Unable to bear the shadows, thoroughly creeped out and remembering the voice I'd heard the last time I was alone in the room, I quickly flipped on the lights. Soft white gold light shepherd the darkness away as the overhead bulb switched on. I craned my head, expecting whispers of, Danny, Danny, get the fuck out, Danny. Nothing. Only the gentle whir of a ceiling fan and the noises of the outside world. Struggling to reclaim my composure, I moved across the kitchen, around the island, and opened a cabinet to get a clean glass. When I filled it with refreshing ice water, I stood, leaning against the kitchen sink, and stared at the door leading back towards the living room. Every other piece of mail had a return address, mailing address, something other than my name. Now, I know I was distraught the night my family was murdered, but I know there wasn't any letter on the damn coffee table. So who wrote it? Who left it? Now that I was asking these questions, who had done my laundry? And who, for that matter, brought the fucking mail in? I was scared. No, I was piss your pants terrified, and I really didn't like it. I wasn't going to stay the night here anyway. 
and I probably should have had Scott with me. But, well, I really didn't want to be here anymore. And yet, I struggled with an almost compulsory need to know what was in the envelope. I sipped my water, refilled it when I drained the contents, and repeated the process six more times. Sure, I was stalling. Sure, I was chicken shit. But a guy knows when something ain't right. All that being said, I eventually put my glass in the sink and returned to the couch. Fear and curiosity typically go hand in hand. Often, curiosity proves to be the stronger of the two. My hands trembled when I held the smooth envelope above my knees. It seemed harmless enough, but if my college education has taught me anything, its words are far from harmless at the best of times. Delicately, I tore open the envelope and shook a folded sheet of notebook paper into my palm. Small, neat writing covered the front and back. Dropping the envelope into the forgotten mail, I started to read. Hello, Daniel. By now you have experienced the delightful effects of my handiwork. I am truly sorry. Sorry I could not share this moment with you in person. Such sorrow brings us as close to purity as we shall ever get. If I have got your attention, which I am quite sure I have, I would like to tell you a story. It begins more than two decades ago, nearly a year before you were born. A dashing young man. We'll call him Todd. Well, Todd was attacked by really bad men outside a bar somewhere in Appalachia. They beat him senseless, bloodying his face and breaking three ribs. Folks around those parts don't hold well to drifters after all. It doesn't matter there happened to be a string of murders up and down the highway Todd had been hitchhiking. They assumed his guilt. Ah, but coincidences happen, do they not? Long story short, these exemplary citizens beat him so viciously he wound up in the local hospital. All was not terrible, as this is where he met the nurse. Beautiful, witty, and kind. She patched him up. More than physically, she healed his soul too. She reminded our hero there are good people in the world. Todd stuck around town after that. He found work at a local lumber mill and lodging at a local boarding house. The proprietress was this ornery old widow named Ruth Barr. He even managed to buy a battered pickup from an old farmer Ruth knew. Anyway, Todd stuck around and ran into that pretty nurse from time to time. Now eventually, Todd and Nurse, we will call her Nurse for now. Anyway, Todd and Nurse eventually got to spend enough time together for him to ask her out on the most respectable of dates. Naturally, she said yes. Well, she should have. But apparently only having intimate conversations over coffee for weeks did not warrant a date. Our hero was disappointed but undeterred. He showed up at the end of her shift, and, when her car would not start, she accepted his invitation for a ride. Such a lovely one at that. In the end, she thanked him by offering her body. Yes, Daniel, our hero made love to his nurse. Sadly, it was not to be a soft mattress, rather a plush riverbank where the crickets could hear their cries of ecstasy. Ah, but all too soon, these lovers' copulation reached crescendo. All too soon, Nurse whispered for him to take her home. 
Being the gentleman that he was, Todd obliged, but the nurse turned out to not be worthy of our hero's trust. When he went to call on her the next day, her roommate archly claimed she was not home. When he went to the hospital, a fetching receptionist, who seemed to like Todd, reported she had not shown up for work. His nurse was gone. Dejected and lovesick, Todd returned to his room. He tried her home and work, the diner they crossed paths over and over, and other places he knew she frequented. Nurse had left town. Hurt and angry, he soon left town too. Now time marches to its own beat, and life stops for no man. Well, that is not exactly true, but it will work for our story. Todd grows older, wiser, and less prone to lovesick foolishness. His looks change, his demeanor evolves into manhood, and finally, he makes his way to the Carolina coast. And guess who he meets? Nurse. She's older now, married, two children, one a 14-year-old boy. She does not remember Todd, but that is okay. Time has taught him to behave differently to win a woman's affections. So, he hires on at the local church as a choir leader. He volunteers at the local Salvation Army, several homeless shelters, and various other organizations. He builds himself a reputation as a respectable citizen. But then, he tries to get Nurse's husband to leave. Clearly, this villain is no good for her. Todd is her soulmate. He tells the husband that Nurse has been cheating on him. As the husband is stupid, he eventually believes our hero. His departure allows Todd to swoop in to the rescue. He gets to know the kids. The younger one is like its father, and Todd cannot connect to him. But the older one, the one who looks so much like Todd when he was small, he loves this boy. But then the husband decides to reclaim his life. He threatens Todd. He tells Todd that he knows the truth about him. Filthy lies. This fool does not know anything about Todd. At least, he did not think so. But the husband shares more than Todd ever told Nurse. He reveals a secret, a secret about hunger, and what an old drifter did when the blackness rose up inside him. Todd demanded he keep his filthy mouth shut. The husband refused. He attacked Todd. He lost. He wrote letters to Nurse and the boy for many years afterward. He told his truth. He shared his secrets. And eventually, he returned. Do you see where this story is going, Daniel? Nadia could not handle knowing that her Todd was, well, the man she knew so long ago. She attacked me when I asked to see you. I did not mean to hurt her, but when she wouldn't let me see you, I just... I grew upset. And young Walter had to listen in on our conversation. I tried to stop him so I could explain, you see. But he is like his father. He would not see reason. So, I dealt with him. But you are okay. Yes? I saw you that night. You were with your friends. You should not spend time with those cretins. They will only hurt you in the end, especially when they learn what, who you really are. That's all for now, son. Oh, and I folded the laundry and brought in the mail. The milk smelled a tad sour, so I took care of that too. Until next time.
know that I love you, Dad. The paper fell from my hand. Breath caught in my throat, making it hard to breathe. My ass remained firmly planted on the seat cushion, which was probably for the best as the room started spinning. I leaned over, nearly hyperventilating as Todd's words sunk in. A lie. All a lie. Please God, let it be a lie. Bile spewed upwards, meaning to escape my throat, and as I nearly loosed it all over the coffee table, I heard the last thing I ever expected. Who was at the door? This has been a Black and Grim production. The Black and Grim podcast is an original horror fiction production and cannot be reproduced without written consent from the creators. All rights to the story belong to the author and cannot be reproduced without written consent. Besides, I do not think you want to anger Grim. Thank you for joining us for episode 3 of Danny's River. Join us next time as we see when he learns who is at the door. Grim. Hey, where did that new body come from? <laughs>